the Sunday Night Health Show podcast, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk makes sense of the variants and the vaccines. And what do dead bedrooms have in common with the leading causes of death? The relationship might surprise you. And speaking of relationships, is your spouse controlling, demanding, always needing to be right? And do they have emotional or physical reactions that are drastic and irrational? You might say they're neurotic. I might say it's something else. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Well, look at that. An 18-year-old kid wins the U.S. Open. Congrats to Emma Raducanu. No need to feel guilty if you didn't raise a professional athlete. We're going to be talking about why here on the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am your host, Maureen McGrath. I'm a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health educator. If you would like to be part of the program, feel free to give me a call. The number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well or feel free to email me in confidence at at hotmail.com. We've got lots to talk about on the program tonight. We are going to talk about mother's guilt and uh, also going to be talking about how anxiety impacts your relationship and the impact of estrogen on heart health. We always talk about COVID, of course, although we cover a variety of health subjects on the program, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. We've got lots to talk about on the program tonight, but right now... And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Joining me on the line once again is the world-famous Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. He studies uh, out of the University of Manitoba. He studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. Thank goodness we have him here most Sunday nights to talk about and answer your questions about COVID-19 and, and the latest and greatest on how we can stay healthy and safe. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. Good evening. I hope you're using air quotes when you said world famous, by the way, just, just as a sidebar. <laughs> never, never. Are you kidding? <laughs> They're asking me about you all over the world. <laughs> Thanks for being on the program once again. Uh, I mean, we say it every week. I wonder what's going to be new next week. <laughs> and uh, what's new is yeah. new. <laughs> I guess, which has been found in Toronto, a new variant, MU. Uh, how frightened should we be about that or how concerned? What's what's the deal on MU? Yeah, you know what? I think this is one of these cases, again, where, listen, we've we picked up a variant of interest. It's been designated as such. It, it has some, you know, some, some properties that certainly have lined up with, uh, with what we've seen with other variants of concern in, in regards to mutations. But we haven't seen it actually do a lot of the things that, uh, that, that we you know, would normally be concerned about. So it's taken over in, in Colombia and Ecuador, uh, although in Colombia it seems to have plateaued in regards to the proportion of new cases that are being reported. Uh, it certainly has made its way into other countries across the globe, but it's not out-competing Delta. And I think that's, that's really the biggest thing that we have to take away from this, is that you know, in order for a new variant to survive, it has to be more fit. It has to out-compete what's already circulating. And Delta is kind of like the big silverback for uh, for all the variants right now. And it's going to take a lot to displace that. So I, we're watching it. But honestly, I you know, Delta continues to be the thing that we need to be worried about. 
And I saw a statistic somewhere that 99.1% of the new COVID infections, which continue to rise across Canada and the U.S., are the Delta variant. Is, yeah. is that correct? That, that is correct. I mean, you know, when you look at, at Delta, and, and I, you know, I'm not joking when I say it's the silver back. I mean, it's, it, you look at its transmissibility, it, it's, it's surely far more transmissible than even Alpha was. It still is, is very good at what it does. It's still causing people to end up in hospitals. We think it might you know, potentially cause uh, or increase the risk for, for hospitalization, though that's been a little bit debated. But it just transmits too quickly right now for anything to, to seemingly outcompete it. It's just incredible that we're at this stage and, you know, projections are looking like we're into this till I've, I've read 2022, 2024. Um, uh, do, do you get a sense that uh, more people are getting vaccinated um, in, in Canada as a result of fears around uh, the Delta variant? I think it's a combination, right? So certainly, you know, listen, what we've seen recently in, in Alberta and, and Saskatchewan, I think has been a, a really good kind of warning shot across the bow, right? I think that we, you know, maybe got a little bit comfortable in saying, okay, we got through Alpha, things are, are different. We're, you know, at a higher vaccination rate than what most places are in the U.S. We should be okay. And then it's hit and it's hit hard. And I mean, you hear the stories coming out of, uh, certainly out of Alberta ICUs right now. And I think people are getting more concerned, certainly from the, the side of hesitancy. There's certainly a lot more people that are asking questions. I think you're starting to see that that group is starting to come around and say, yeah, maybe actually I need to be considering this. So I hope we're on the right track. Um, you know, I, I hope it comes quickly. We, we don't need to go through uh, any more loss of lives. And, and unfortunately, I think we're, we're going to face this for a little bit until we get things under control in those two provinces. And if you have any questions out there for Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Uh, we do hear those stories about people who have gotten, did not get, decided not to get vaccinated and then ended up getting COVID and, and became quite ill. We see a lot on Twitter and on social media, at people on their deathbed saying, I didn't choose to get the vaccine, but I suggest you do. Um, new evidence suggests that those who are unvaccinated and infected with Delta may have a higher likelihood of being hospitalized when compared to those who were infected with previous variants. I, I know of a case myself, of a colleague and friend, um, his father, and he's a physician, and his father decided not to get the vaccination, ended up in ICU on a ventilator. Uh, he's fortunately been discharged, and but he is going to have sequelae. He will have long-term uh, respiratory issues. Uh, and of course, now he's going to get the vaccine. You know, how, how important do you think it is for people to get vaccinated, especially those with comorbidities? And may I remind you out there that age is a comorbidity, yeah. <laughs> along with hypertension, yeah, yeah. diabetes, uh, obesity. Go ahead, Dr. Kendrick. I'll just say that there's, there's no question. And, I, and I've, I've said this a few times, and, and certainly, you know, was talking to, to uh, uh, Lauren Pelley from CBC this, this past week. And I, what, what more data do we need to tell us the vaccines are working? Not only are they safe, but in fact, they are helping us change the tide in regards to, to people uh, not ending up in hospitals. This is not a disease that, that only targets one segment of the population. It certainly does that um, you know, you know, better than, than in others, but we still see younger people that are ending up with severe disease. So the, the vaccines unequivocally are working. And I, I think that's the, the tough part is 
you know, I, I, what else can we show in regards to data to, to convince people? I think we have to just continue to hammer the message home um, and continue to get vaccine supply out. It's it's frustrating. It's certainly demoralizing when, when we're fighting, you know, kind of the uh, the misinformation uh, that's coming out as of late. Um, but I think we are winning the battle. It's just it's going to take a while yet. I, I think so. And, um, you know, you hear people say, um, you know, if, if you're being careful, well, you're vaccinated, you know, but but people don't realize that you can still get uh, COVID-19, yeah. even if you are vaccinated, but you will only be contagious and have that high viral load for a shorter period. Like if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the data that we have to date, uh, if you're vaccinated, you'll have a lesser less burden of disease and a shorter course. Would, would you agree uh, with that? Absolutely. Even with the viral load data, I mean, we, we've certainly seen different instances when they've looked at an infectious virus. Uh, Dr. Marion Koopmans uh, in, the, in the Netherlands uh, had spearheaded some of that work. And we see lower infectious virus titers in people that were vaccinated. Now, it's a small cohort, but certainly mm-hmm. it suggested that everything we have indicating to us saying not only do you get less severe disease, but you still are likely less transmissible. It's not zero, but it certainly is much better than somebody that is unvaccinated. And is it true that vaccinated individuals experience the higher viral loads for about three to four days versus 10 days for unvaccinated individuals who get COVID? Yeah, we think so, right? So certainly looking at the, you know, that that period or that, that potential uh, transmission period, it seems to be a lot shorter. So we've been breakthrough infections uh, or, or people that have any sort of symptoms that are vaccinated, I, their their disease course is it's not only shorter, but their, their actual symptoms are lesser, right? So they may have virus in their respiratory tract, but if they're not sneezing and coughing um, frequently, they're not going to be transmitting as readily. And I think all these things we have to take into account, and certainly we have to provide this context when we're having these these conversations with the public about about this issue. And then I, I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, but I do have a caller on the line. Mary from Winnipeg has a question for the doctor. Good evening, Mary. Good evening. Thanks for taking my question. My question is, what's it going to take for uh, public policy makers to mandate vaccinations? Is it going to take a variant that the current vaccine will not work against? Oh, so in, in regards to mandates, I mean, we're, we're certainly we're seeing more you know, in terms of getting closer to man, full mandates. I don't know what it's going to take, Mary, to, to see, say, like a federal initiative um, or, or even have all the provinces on board to mandating. I look at it at this point and say, listen, if, if you don't want to have a mandate, then you should be one of the first people that is promoting vaccines all day and all evening so that you don't have to have a mandate. But, but we're not seeing that. So I, I don't know what it's going to take. I, you know, at this point, if we're not seeing um, provinces pull through with it, it, you know, I don't, I don't know what else we can do for, for, to get the writing on the wall. I really don't know what, what, else, what other messaging we can use. Well, I guess it'll take mutation that the vaccine doesn't work against. Let's yeah, hope that doesn't they, happen. <laughs> Well, and, and that's the thing that I would say, right, Maureen, is that, you know, and, and Mary both, is that so far, keep in mind that with all the variants we've had presented to us, yes, we've seen some decreases in vaccine uh, effectiveness, but we have not seen a variant that the vaccines cannot provide protection against. And I think that's one of the things that I keep going back to, is that the vaccines are working unbelievably well. And that's, we have to continue to hammer this point home. But 
it's getting difficult. It's getting unbelievably difficult to, to continue to do that. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk is my guest once again. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kindrachuk. Absolutely. All right, I have Nancy on the line with a question for you. Good evening, Nancy. Hi, Maureen. It's Nancy from Empty Cradle. Dr. Kinderchuk, just for your benefit and the listeners who may not have heard Maureen and my interview a number of years ago, my husband and I run a support group for parents who have suffered a pregnancy loss. I heard on the news this weekend that they are now specifically advising those who would like to get pregnant or who already are pregnant to get the vaccine. And I'm just wondering what new information we have to actually make this a special announcement this weekend? Yeah, I think the, you know, if you're hearing anything in regards to announcements, it's because there's been more data that's come out from cohorts looking at severity of disease in pregnant women. And certainly what we're seeing, which is, again, it's not that, I would have to say it's not that surprised, but it, it falls in line with what we've seen with other, certainly respiratory infections uh, like influenza, there is an, a risk of, of more severe disease in women that are pregnant. So I think that's, again, one of those aspects of saying that, listen, we, we know that there is a cohort um, of women that are actually at, at much greater risk of severe disease, and that's if they are pregnant. Um, so you're starting to hear those recommendations really ramp up. Okay. Uh, just wanted to double check before I start sharing with the group that if they haven't been vaccinated, it's recommended that they start doing so. The, the recommendation is still there. And certainly uh, NEJM and, and a few uh, other, I think mean, like New England Journal of Medicine has been the one that's actually been posting most of the, the cohort studies as, as of late. But you know, feel free to always email me and I can send you those papers as well. Awesome. Thanks, both of you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank Thanks. you. Great question. There was a time in Canada when um, there were more pregnant women in ICUs than had ever been in the history, that were admitted to ICUs with COVID than had ever been admitted in the history of intensive care unit uh, medicine in Canada. Um, a, a lot of young women don't want to get the vaccine because they feel it may have an impact on their uh, reproduction, or also I've heard women who are, who are pregnant that they don't, they feel something uh, may impact their child as a result of it. But, but as you say, there's a lot of data coming out as just how significant their disease has been. So, I mean, that's very important, but always um, speaking to their doctor and, and getting their advice from doctors. Another stat that I heard recently, Dr. Kindertruck, that surprised me was that 40% of nurses have not been vaccinated. Does that surprise you? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it does. I, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, certainly mm-hmm. I, I think that we're getting better, maybe better insight now on on what some of those reasonings are, but it, it's concerning, right? I mean, I think, again, it comes down to, yes, there's there's a personal aspect where, you know, we can, we can lambast people about not getting vaccinated and then, you know, provide rhetoric and, and do all that. But what's the underlying reason? And I think to me, that is the bigger issue of why is there a low uptake and, and where, where are we losing um, that, that messaging? So I, I think you're going to see more strategies being evolved out of this, but it, it certainly is concerning there. You know, if you have people that, that are in, uh, you know, healthcare settings uh, where you have high risk patients, um, you know, and they're not vaccinated, that's a big risk. 
I, I think it's, I agree with you. It's a, it's a tremendous risk. And I, I am all for vaccinating healthcare workers. Um, I mean, I, I think it's only fair, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, how about our kids going back to school? We only have about a 30 seconds left. Um, what do you think the impact of that is? And do you think they're going to be vaccinating kids under 12 anytime <sighs> soon? So, uh, yeah, some concern. Um, definitely. Uh, I think we're, you know, we've seen with Delta, there's been increasing cases uh, in kids, certainly in the U.S. Um, so we need to continue to watch that. They, I think the light at the end of the tunnel is some of the uh, announcements from Pfizer that we may have an emergency mm-hmm. use authorization put in place for 5 to 11 very, very soon. It'll get the next That's few right. weeks to a couple of months. Absolutely. Can I hear you there? <laughs> I think I've lost. Oh, there you are. There you are. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So hopefully that will come out soon. Dr. Kendrachuk, thank you so much. I'm sure next week we'll have lots more to talk about as usual. (laughs) Always a pleasure, Maureen. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening and any other time uh, you've ever joined me. I appreciate it. Uh, If it's your first time joining me, welcome to the show. Feel free to give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can always email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Uh, you may or may not know that I see a lot of people who present to my clinical practice, well, virtually these days, um, with uh, they have not had sex in God knows how many years, <laughs> many, many years. They may not have even married that long, um, but say they're married 10 years, they may not have had sex for the last eight years um, or six years, or they may have been married for 15 years and haven't had sex in, in 12 years. And I often say, you know, that's the pimple. <laughs> but the pus lies beneath. Um, There are so many other issues that are related to the sexless marriage or which is defined by the experts as sex less than 10 times a year. Um, You know, there's, that's just the, what they present with. That's their, the problem. That's what they think the issue is. And how can I get my partner, my spouse uh, to want to have sex with me. Um, and so it's, it's a real conundrum for a lot of people, but what I find, uh, and I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into this a little bit later on in the program, but what I find is that the sexless marriage is often related to medical problems or, or physical health, uh, mental health as well, emotional health also. Um, but oftentimes kind of lifestyle things. And it, it made me think of, you know, dead bedrooms and, you know, the, the marriage is dead in a way. And um, so that led me the way my mind works, to, <laughs> which is really bizarre. Anyway, at times, um, the top causes of death. Well, if the if the bedroom is dead, you know, what the heck? Um, it's, that's not a good thing. But it's a very, such an important aspect of marriage or a relationship. Uh, so I just thought, you know what, sometimes and, you know, many, many times, it is related to cardiovascular health or obesity. And um, I, I had a patient recently, and they presented actually with leakage of urine, so urinary incontinence. It was a man, and that was what the appointment was for. That is what the man spoke about for the entire time. That is what we discussed in terms of treatment recommendations. And then at the very end of the call, he said, oh, and by the way, I have erectile dysfunction. It's like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Um, so that's another whole uh, hour we're going to spend on that, um, at least. 
so that's an issue as well because his wife wanted him to address that issue. And so oftentimes it can be that people are embarrassed to address their sexual health concerns or even healthcare providers are embarrassed to talk about it. But I thought it's really important to talk about that which affects your intimate life uh, because it also may impact how long you're going to live. Um, and so I just thought it might be interesting to learn about the um, top reasons, uh, according to the CDC, the top 10 causes of death. And uh, number one is heart disease, and that's for men and women as well. And, and number two is cancer. And I, and I kind of wanted to go through delve a little bit more deeply into cancer because there are some risk factors for cancer. But then I want to go to lung disease as well. And then number four is accidents. Number five is stroke. And that's also related. There are some modifiable lifestyle behaviors that you can implement in your life to prevent stroke. There's also Alzheimer's disease is actually number three, four, five, six. <laughs> I think I could be losing it already early onset. Um, diabetes is number seven and flu and pneumonia is number eight. Interesting. We are heading toward that season. We are kissing the flu season right now, which combined with COVID doesn't make for a very nice cocktail. Um, we're going to talk about alcohol as well as one of the risk factors for cancer. And then kidney disease is number nine and death by suicide is number 10. Um, and so, you know, it's important to think about these things in terms of uh, your lifestyle and, you know, really taking care of your body and your mind and, and realizing that, you know, it's a gift that you've been given this, this tomb essentially for you to walk this earth in. And, and it's very important that people take care of it. And one of the best ways to take care of it is through nutrition. Uh, very important to uh, have a diet that is high in protein, a low glycemic index, so low sugar, low carbs, um, you know, try to stay away from processed foods, that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing is uh, something that is not modifiable, something that we cannot avoid, but is a risk factor, especially for cancer and heart disease as well, is age. So that's just something that is unavoidable. That is an unavoidable risk factor. Um, but some of the other things are avoidable risk factors, and they may lower your risk of developing certain cancers. And so alcohol, I think, people don't realize that drinking alcohol can increase your risk of cancer of the mouth, throat, esophagus, larynx. These are the head and neck cancers. Uh, mind you, I will say that um, they're having fabulous results with immunotherapy in terms of treating um, head and neck cancers and also malignant melanoma. But drinking alcohol specifically increases your risk of those cancers. Um, and it makes sense uh, as well. And also liver cancer, needless to say, and breast cancer. So I don't think a lot of women realize that, but I do meet a lot of women who have stopped drinking alcohol after they have been diagnosed with breast cancer. So the more you drink, the higher your risk. And the risk of cancer is much higher for those who drink alcohol and also use tobacco. And you know, a lot of people drink alcohol um, once they start, they can't stop. Uh, there's a lot of people who use alcohol as a medication. And, and so that can actually lead to excessive use as well. And of course, we live in a society that is very pro-alcohol. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the most um, accepted forms of 
uh, social medication, shall we say. Um, a lot of people drink for social anxiety reasons, uh, to feel better when they actually feel worse. There is, um, you know, there's almost a stigma. People love people to drink with them. Nobody likes to drink alone. Um, but there's this, you know, idea that alcohol makes people feel better, but alcohol is actually a depressant. And so if you have any degree of, of anxiety or depression, although it might make you feel better in the short term, consider giving up alcohol altogether. You likely will feel much better. I did have a patient one time. I've had many patients, but anyway, one in particular, every now and again, I remember <laughs> one special patient. Um, but this particular young man, he felt that he needed antidepressants. And so we were, he was about 28, maybe 30. And, um, and he just said that he was having some difficulty sleeping and he, you know, was feeling kind of down and, you know, medication isn't the first thing you want to go toward. Um, there's other, when there are other conservative measures. And so when we looked at his alcohol use and, and kind of tracked it a little bit and how he felt after he drank, he realized that he got, you know, a bit of, you know, a sense of feeling low or down after he consumed alcohol. And I said, try not drinking alcohol. And anyway, he um, felt much better and, and ended up not a very short, long story short, didn't end up going on medication. I have a caller on the line, Derek from Edmonton. Good evening, Derek. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm not doing too bad. Um, I was wondering, um, can drinking alcohol increase the risk of breast cancer in men as well as women? No, I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I really can't give you a yes or no, but what I can say is that it does increase breast cancer. And since men can get breast cancer as well, I would imagine that that could be the case also. So it, it would probably increase it um, for men as well. But I really, you know, would have to double check that answer for you. But it makes sense that it would, it wouldn't discriminate against men because breast cancer doesn't. All right. Well, thank you very much. That answers my question. You're very welcome. Thanks for tuning in and giving me a call. If you have a call for me, the number to call is one 399 9898 one 399 9898 So here we are back on that little list of, um, of those things that are going to kill you. <laughs> so oftentimes, like things like stroke, I am constantly talking to people about their blood pressure because if you have hypertension, there is a darn good chance that you're going to have erectile dysfunction. And, you know, that's, uh, and also cardiovascular disease. It's the canary in the coal mine. If you have erectile dysfunction, you actually should ensure that your ticker is working okay. And and so speak to your doctor. That's why erectile dysfunction, is, it's a sexual health problem, but it's also a physical problem. And it's certainly, it may signify um, heart disease. Um, I knew somebody who had erectile dysfunction and they had a, a valve this uh, issue, a valve disorder. And, you know, there can be a number of different disorders as well. But, you know, diabetes. So we're looking at uh, type 2 diabetes, which is, you know, is, is lethal. And what's that associated with? That is associated with the North American diet that we are, um, you know, so in love with, shall we say. Um, but, you know, people don't, you know, we're eating out more, especially now since the restaurants are open and I'm all pro eating outdoors, <laughs> not indoors, but, um, you know, we get takeout. It's so accessible. There are so many processed foods available. I mean, there was something on Shark Tank earlier 
that um, was like a 2000 calorie sandwich. It sounded great, but you want to stay away from it. So it's very important that your abdominal girth is not like a tire, like a spare tire, as one patient described his waistline to me. Um, and in fact, it was the gentleman who said he erectile dysfunction. And um, I asked him, you know, height, weight, you know, just a quick. And, uh, you know, I said, I, I know without even doing the math that you were, you know, too, um, too heavy for this world. <laughs> um, may I suggest you take that weight off? It's really important, especially abdominal weight can be extremely dangerous because that does, um, that is near your heart. I have a caller, Richard from Niagara region. Hello, Richard. Yeah, good evening, ma'am. Um, yeah, it's a little late out here in, in Niagara compared to where you are. Um, I guess. <laughs> but um, I'm I'm a military service member diagnosed with PTSD uh, mm-hmm. with alcohol, and I use alcohol to sometimes cope. Um, mm-hmm. what, just wondering how what your feedback is in regards to that. I I'm not. I, I mean, I think there are so many healthier ways to cope than alcohol. Um, you know what I have to, I I mean, how, how often do you use it to cope that that's something you want to look at your use? Um, and you know, how do you feel afterward? Um, you know, what are other aspects in your life? Like, how is your relationship? Do you exercise? Because exercise can be tremendously beneficial or also, uh, going to therapy for PTSD as well can be very beneficial, but I think you can, can get on a rabbit hole with uh, when you're using alcohol to cope. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Um, anyway, bottoms up here. Uh, we, we are at the coming to the break now. Um, but there's just so many. There's just so many aspects that are around health that are related to longevity and morbidity and mortality that also are related to the sexist marriage or the dead bedrooms, if you will. So there are so many things that are modifiable. Getting the flu shot, for example, can reduce your risk of getting the flu. Um, Also, you know, with, with suicide even, you know, there's such a stigma still with mental illness. It's so sad. But, you know, mental health is just as important as physical health, physical health. So many people have struggled at some point in their life. So many people have had anxiety. It's the number one mental illness. There should be no shame in it, but there is. And so even that, there's just so much um, in terms of prevention. Um, But, you know, diet and exercise and leading a healthy life can actually be so uh, healthy and preventive in terms of a lot of these top 10 causes of death that uh, that occur. And these are also things that will actually decrease your quality of life as well. So just know thyself every day, get up, do some exercise, get out there, eat healthy, get some sleep, ensure that you're uh, getting adequate sleep. Mindfulness meditation is very beneficial every single day. Nine minutes, what I recommend to all of my patients every day, uh, just to do that practice of trying to calm the mind because a lot of people cannot calm their mind down. And they oftentimes will say their mind is going a mile a minute, which can actually lead to stress and anxiety and productivity. And it can affect your job and relationships. One thing leads to another. Anyway, it's time for the bedroom bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday night health show. This is the time of night that you go to 
sleep with me. Hopefully not sleep. Hopefully it's just bed. Um, the bedroom is very important in life. It's a place to sleep. It's also a place for intimacy. But I want to go through your text messages first because I love them <laughs> before I go on to talking to you about, uh, you know, an aspect around sexless marriage. And I'll just try to segue it all and relate it all together and all of this kind of thing. Anyway, love your text messages, one 877 Um but I will probably read them on air. Uh, so here we go. Nurse Maureen, can the COVID-19 vaccine be injected into the buttocks or thighs? That's from D in Ontario. Seriously asking, D says, but as a joke, I'd ask a vaxxer to photo verification like I seen on social media sites. Some, this is the same phone number, some paranoid individuals could actually refuse the vaccine on the arm area. Buttocks injections might encourage anti-vaxxers. It's an intramuscular vaccination. It's an intramuscular injection, I should say, um, because of the vascularity. Um, and so that helps uh, to disseminate the vaccine. And uh, so I don't think we should be taking photographs of people getting the injection in their buttocks. Anyway, good thought. Next, there was um, we were talking earlier about alcohol in the program, and um, somebody wrote in and said, Maureen, there was never a problem so big that alcohol didn't make worse. A PTSD survivor and clean and sober for 30 years, still trying to get back some of what I lost. Well, congratulations. Uh, I imagine you've gotten a lot back um, of what you have lost and, and good for you. That's, uh, that's actually an outstanding accomplishment. And thank you for sharing that. And this is perhaps my favorite text message, aside from the one from the guy who <laughs> wants to put me, at least me and someone else, <laughs> um, because he said he never, I'm assuming it's a guy. I don't know. Could be a woman. And that person wrote, they wrote, I've never heard so many mistruths in my life. Use people should be put in jail. Use spent, spelled U-S-E. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, that, but my favorite comment of the night is um, in talking about the fellow who, I mean, yeah, I was at the stop sign a little bit long. Uh, yeah, guilty. Um, but he just laid on that horn. His wife, I imagine his wife, a woman was in the car and a couple of kids in the back, and, uh, and he just laid on the horn for a long time, much, much longer than necessary, and a simple toot would have been fine, um, and <laughs> anyway, and I made the comment that, you know, would you want to be married to that guy, and then uh, a na nameless, but I think I recognize his number, I'm kidding, um, wrote in, thank you for that comment, it made me think, would would you want to be married to that guy? I have been that guy. Maybe next time I will take a breath. Yes, absolutely. No, and I don't recognize your number. I'm totally kidding. But there's probably a few people who get into a little road rage out there and probably just freak out because they're late or whatever and, um, you know, lay on that horn or just flip the bird. I mean, <laughs> I have certainly been on the receiving end of uh, many... <laughs> not being the best driver out there in the whole wide world, probably the only person in Canada who's gotten a ticket for going too slow anyway, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, I had a driving experience just yesterday that I won't, I won't tell you about, but well, I will. Okay. The GPS was talking to me and then people in the car were talking to me and 
and I wasn't going anywhere near where the GPS was telling me or the people in the car were telling me to go. And they were saying, are you listening? Do you know what, where you're going? And I was just off in some other dreamland, I guess. Anyway, but do not text and drive for sure. Okay. So thanks for all those text messages. If you want to give me a call, the number to call is one 399 That's one 399 Because I want to talk to you about a common occurrence in my clinical practice where, you know, most people present, if they don't have urinary incontinence or erectile dysfunction, they're in a sexless marriage. And it's uh, in large part due to uh, the fact that they just don't understand why their spouse doesn't want to have sex with them. But a lot can be going on. I mean, the road rage guy that I talked to you about, I can't imagine that his wife would want to be going home and having sex with him either um, with that kind of behavior because that wasn't his only moment of the day, I'm sure. I'm, I'm certain that, I mean, that was like at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I'm sure he had many other moments like that throughout the day. And that kind of thing is a massive, massive turnoff. But, you know, maybe that person has a problem with anxiety or, or something some other diagnosable condition. Um, because you know what? Patience is a virtue and, you know, we all have to chill a little bit, especially these days, given this pandemic that we're in. But, you know, oftentimes uh, people will want to see me virtually and talk to me about their sexless marriage. They don't understand. But that's really not the problem. That's kind of the outcome. Uh, as I say, as I mentioned earlier, it's like the pimple, but what pops after the conversation is all the pus, everything else that comes out, all the issues in the relationship that lead to that um, lack of uh, sex in the marriage. And, you know, oftentimes what I find is one or both of the couple, you know, has this pop psychology, it's a pop psychology term that I'm going to use, has neuroses. And, and that's often described by the spouse. They'll say, my husband is neurotic, my wife is neurotic, whatever. But there are certain behaviors that are associated with uh, this lack of um, sex, lack of sexual desire in the marriage. About 37.6% of women experience low sexual desire. About 11 to 12% are bothered by it. That's significant that only 11 to 12% are bothered by it. In terms of men, men can also experience low sexual desire, even though we think that all men want is sex, but that's not true. About 20% of men can experience low sexual desire. And the most common reason is fatigue. And so if people are, uh, I'm going to use air quotes, neurotic, um, you know, that can be very exhausting. So if people are experiencing or exhibiting behaviors that are controlling, or they are demanding, or they are enraged over the littlest things, or they have to get their own way, or they, um, you know, they, they just are never happy if you're constantly bickering with your spouse, constantly fighting. Um, it can be crazy making. If things don't make sense, uh, it can certainly be crazy making for the one spouse, but it can go on for years and years and years this kind of thing, this vicious cycle where people just focus on, you know, why doesn't this person, my spouse, want to have sex with me? But they don't look deep. They don't look past that piece of it because that's really all that they're thinking about. But there is, um, there are certain behaviors that may 
indicate that somebody is troubled, if you will. Um, and so, for example, anxiety is one of those situations where it, you know, it needs to be diagnosed, but anxiety causes one to avoid life experiences that are meant to be enjoyed. I've said this before on the program, life is to be enjoyed, not endured. Um, but couples where one is experiencing anxiety or sort of neurotic behaviors may have, uh, that those couples may have repeated issues in the relationship that often don't make sense. And that's that crazy making that I'm talking about. So living with somebody who experiences anxiety can lead to that chaotic life or that chaotic relationship. You know, anxiety is really a lack of peace of mind. And it's the best kept secret in the world, yet it's the number one mental illness in North America. And it's 18% of the population that experiences anxiety. And what those with anxiety experience or take part in is often not seen by others, even in intimate relationships. So how people deal with their anxiety can also be secret as well. And and people aren't looking, they're not assessing, they're not seeing how much um, alcohol somebody is consuming, for example. They might only be seeing the tip of the iceberg. They may be enabling that as well. I would like to say that anxiety affects both men and women, although it's often thought of as um, associated mainly with women. And that's where that hysteria, and that's a whole historical thing about the uterus. <laughs> um, it relates to the uterus. We'll go into that another night. Um, but men can also experience anxiety as well. And anxiety can cause periods of panic or a sense of being overwhelmed, a sense of unease or tension, and can also consume one's thoughts at, you know, all day long. And it's exhausting, It's not just tiring, it's exhausting. And it can negatively impact many areas of one's life. And so, you know, it seems that people are on this treadmill, this vicious cycle where it just continuously happens, where somebody may experience behaviors where, you know, they, they may have certain rituals, for example, that, that might make them feel better. Um, but anxiety robs people of joy in life because experiencing uh, a joyful life or enjoying life requires that sense of being safe in the world. And, and anxiety can be life limiting. So people don't feel safe in the world for whatever reason, but it's often related to trauma because brains become hardwired for many reasons. But the most common reasons is because of trauma or an adverse childhood experience, what is known as the ACEs. And there's other reasons as well, like substance use and abuse, like pot smoking, for example. Everybody thinks it's super chill, makes you super chill, but it actually can cause a lot of people to experience anxiety or alcohol the same. Alcohol is a depressant, but it can also increase a person's heart rate. But experiencing joy requires that sense of safety or freedom, that, that just ability to just go through life lightly, be confident, be self-assured, to have had that sense of security growing up is also you know, very important. But if people experience, you know, a trauma or one trauma after another, um, that can lead to feeling less safe in the world and less free for sure. And anxiety makes a person feel either fearful or limited. And so if you're constantly living with this sense of fear, you're actually going to limit your interactions with other people. You're going to inter, you're going to li limit your social um, interactions as well. You're not going to go to that party. You're not going to have that play date with your child. Um, and, and there are some people who are hardwired to stress and therefore they have extremely, extreme difficulty 
being in the moment. It's very important to be in the moment for sex and intimacy, to actually be there. And, and, and many people escape during that time. They just want to get it over with. They don't want to enjoy it. There's so much around shame and guilt and poor education and lack of understanding and being with the wrong person and, you know, having unresolved conflict or resentment. But oftentimes negative thoughts and fears can impact a person's ability to be present within a relationship. And that really can suck the joy out of any intimate moments that that couple might have. And it can actually just go on and on and on and and you're just shaking your head and, and that's oftentimes when people go outside of the marriage and uh, ex- have extramarital affairs and it's in part uh, they're seeking a medication themselves in a way they're just seeking somebody to be kind to them and to be nice to them and to want to touch them and to be with them and to have that connection but the other thing that anxiety does is it leads to panic which can lead to procrastination and perfection, perfectionism. And so oftentimes we see people who, you know, have to have things a certain way. Um, unlike me, who just like buys the cupcakes at the supermarket, crushes them a little bit, slaps on some icing from the fridge, makes it look like they're homemade, <laughs> brings them in. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to remember. Um, perfectionism is not me. I have a high standard but it's not that. But I mean, and and I know some perfectionists and their lives are extremely difficult, but sometimes you can be a perfectionist in a certain area um, or another, but that perfectionism leads to that procrastination. So nothing ever gets done. Um, And so in terms of dealing with issues as well, that's also very difficult, but perfectionism sets up people, sets people up for this repeated failure because it's never possible to be perfect. And then there's a constant negative self-talk going on, especially around this procrastination or getting motivated to do something or it's not going to come out perfectly, or you spend hours and hours and hours, days and weeks and months trying to complete a task and you can never get it done because it's never quite good enough because they're never quite good enough. And that's how they feel. Um, you know, people get very defensive when they have anxiety. Um, they actually can, you know, break down. We hear of, of a, I'm sure you've heard the term air quotes again, nervous breakdown. And so, you know, it's, but it's really about a breaking open and, and it really should have no shame around it, but also very important. It's extremely important to process trauma which is often related to shame and perfectionism because unprocessed trauma increases your anxiety. Anxiety can time starve couples. The chronic busyness of today's world leads to less quality time spent together, which is very, very dangerous for a relationship. And anxiety can also lead to this un this codependence, this unwitting codependence. Um, But it's really about accepting who our partners are rather than trying to change them, but it's also trying to help them. But if you recognize yourself in any of what I described, it's important that you get the help that you deserve and that you need, especially if you are in a relationship. But anxiety is exhausting and fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in men and women. And people with anxiety suffer and they suffer big time. But the people living with them also suffer big time. And that's why a dose of compassion can help on both sides of the aisle. And so understanding helps lead to compassion for all. So it's not about just getting upset with somebody and being so resentful and so hateful, but it's really about understanding that it's a treatable condition. And many people have overcome anxiety, but it does take work 
and time and maybe some medication. Up next, I'm going to talk about some of the treatments for anxiety. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.